Hey, church family, so glad to be with you today. Hey, I wanted to give you a quick update on where we're at with our scheduling of our services, specifically our online services. And so starting next Sunday, our aim is to uh, show at 9.30 and 11 our live services as they're happening on campus on, uh, in our worship center. And so if you're joining us online starting next week, we're going to be doing services at 9.30 and 11. You're going to be joining us live. And so whether you're here on campus or you're watching from the comfort of your home, or maybe you're watching with your community group, uh, we're all going to have the same experience. And so I invite you to join us next week, 9.30 and 11. That does mean that our other service times uh, will not be having those for the time being. And we'll let you know any updates as they come our way as to how you can engage with us. Now, by uh, going live at 9.30 and 11, that allows us for increased connectivity with one another. It also allows us to have uh, some pretty cool opportunities to engage with each other in the weeks to come. And so I'm looking forward to seeing how God uses that to continue to unify and bless our church family. Whether you're joining us online or in person, I'm so glad that you're making the intentional decision to invest time in growing in your relationship with Jesus. And if there's any way that we can help you take a next step with Jesus, whether that's uh, being baptized or connecting with a group, we would love to help you do that. You can visit our website, dsvc.church, for more information on how you can take your next step as a follower of Jesus. And now we do have a really cool opportunity that's kicking off this next week. Uh, many of our community groups are doing a five-week study called Love Does. Now, uh, this is going to help us deepen our understanding, not only of God's love for us, but how we're to put that love into action for others. It's a fun study. Uh, the author, Bob Goff, is a ton of fun. I know it's going to be a blessing to you and a benefit to you. So I'd encourage you to join us for this five-week study through one of our community groups. And again, you can visit dsvc.church for more information on how you can get connected to one of our groups. Now, the Love Does Study is a complement to the sermon series that we're kicking off today called Runaway Love. Now, Runaway Love is what we're titling this series, but it's a focus on the profound love of God as it's made known to us in one of the most famous teachings of Jesus, namely uh, the teaching in Luke chapter 15 of the two sons and the loving father. Now that may not sound like a title that you've heard before because oftentimes we refer to this particular teaching as the story of the prodigal son. But I think that by calling it the prodigal son, it puts maybe a, uh, an overemphasis on one of the key figures where in reality, what we are to learn from this parable most profoundly is the prodigal love of God. Now, that word prodigal sounds weird for many of us, but prodigal simply means to spend resources freely, recklessly, and extravagantly. And in this text, Jesus gives us a teaching of the prodigal love of God, that God is overwhelming with his love. It's a runaway love. It also shows us that he loves the runaway. And so what we're going to do today is we're going to give an overview of the context or the scene that we find Jesus giving this teaching in. Because the context will help us understand the nature of his teaching and also how to apply it 
to our own lives. Now, the big picture context is the whole story of the universe. I don't know if you've heard the story of the universe, but the Bible teaches us in this way, that the universal story or the story of the cosmos goes like this in four parts. Number one, we start in the Bible with the opening lines, in the beginning. We find that in the beginning, God creates the heavens and the earth. Everything that is, he created. And so we have the first part of the story, creation. Now, the second part of the story, you find this in Genesis chapter three, is humanity that was created in the image and likeness of God, that that people, male and female, were created by God with inherent dignity, worth, and value, and were image bearers of God. Now, as image bearers, we have a role to steward God's good creation and to enjoy the things that he's given to us. And yet, in Genesis 3, you find what's often called the fall. It's when the image bearers of God gave God the finger, turned from God, and went their own way. Now, in this act of cosmic rebellion, we see that God could have simply destroyed everything and started over. But instead, God, in his infinite grace, mercy, and love, created a way to redeem fallen humanity or his broken image bearers. And we see in the person and work of Jesus Christ, God in the flesh, that act of redemption show up in human history. And on the cross, Jesus being crucified at the hands of his own creation, paid the penalty for our rebellion and paved a way for you and I as rebellious humans to turn from our own self, to turn from our sin and turn to him and to be redeemed, to be saved. And Jesus not only was crucified, but he rose from the grave, conquering over Satan, sin and death. This is why, by the way, we celebrate Easter every year. A recognition that Jesus has conquered over that which brings about rebellion and evil in our own hearts. And ultimately, he's conquered over death and evil. But in his redemptive act, he's not done with the story. And you find before Jesus ascends into the heavens, he says to his followers, one day I'm going to return and I'm going to, the fourth part of the story, restore everything that's broken. And so right now, you and I live in between this space of the finished redemptive work of Jesus and the coming uh, restoration work that he will finish. Uh, You'll find it in the scriptures, specifically in most vivid detail in the book of Revelation, where we find that he is saying to us, he is going to make all things new. He's going to fix that which is broken ultimately and finally. And so this is our four-part story of the universe. Now, when Jesus was walking among us and engaging in his ministry, he would oftentimes uh, make proclamations. He would talk about news and specifically he'd talk about good news. In fact, we get the word gospel from that language of good news. Gospel simply means good news. But what good news of what? Well, good news, to put it one way, of the four-part story 
of the cosmos. But in Luke chapter 4, we get this really interesting phrase. You see in Luke chapter 4, verse 43, Jesus says, uh, he, he's talking to some people who are uh, conversing with him. He says, it is necessary for me to proclaim the gospel or the good news about what? Notice what he says, about the kingdom of God to the other towns also, because I was sent for this purpose. One of the purposes that Jesus recognizes in his ministry is the proclaiming or the proclamation of the gospel or the good news. Good news of what? Good news about the kingdom of God. Jesus was constantly talking about the coming kingdom of God. In fact, in his own self, he would say that the kingdom of God is among you. The kingdom of God is here. Uh, you maybe even be familiar with uh, when Jesus' disciples asked him, said, Lord, teach us how to pray. And in what's often called the Lord's Prayer, you find the lines, thy kingdom come. Thy kingdom come. And Jesus is arguing here, proclaiming the good news that God's kingdom is here in his own self. And one day it will come in its fullness. And so Jesus goes about this work of spreading the good news about the kingdom of God to other towns. And then he calls his followers to go and to spread this good news as well. But there's a question. Who does Jesus invite into his kingdom? So if we're thinking in terms of relationship with God, if we're thinking in terms of how we view God and, and who's in and who's out, this natural question creeps up. Who does Jesus invite, invite into his kingdom? Who does Jesus invite into his kingdom? And this is an important question because for many, especially in this particular moment, there are many in our city and in our community who are of the mind that the in crowd are the good people. We oftentimes think in terms of morality or moral goodness. If I'm just good enough, then God has to love me. This is a common view for many. We think if as long as all my good deeds outweigh all my bad deeds, then, you know, the scales will be right and God will let me into his kingdom. Oftentimes we say things like, let me into heaven. But I want you to see that Jesus does not operate under this paradigm. In fact, one of the things that you find in the scriptures is this profound realization that there's not really a way <laughs> to even out the scales. In fact, even the good things we do with bad motives, are those really counted as good? Moreover, the way that God relates to us is not in a be good enough fashion. It's in a loving, gracious, and compassionate relationship, like a loving parent to their child. I know that for me, with my children, the last thing I want for them is for them to be under the impression that they can earn my love. A good mom, a good dad, they shower their children with unconditional love, loving them simply because they are their child. And so too, God relates to us in the scriptures, not only as a loving father, but also as a nursing mother. You find this in the scriptures as well. And you get this concept of God being imminent and intimate and close and loving us like a parent loves, a, a, like a good parent loves a child. And so we ask the question again, who 
does Jesus invite into his kingdom? Is Jesus only interested in the good enough crowd? Is Jesus only interested in the religious leaders or the religiously devout? Who is Jesus after? Who does Jesus invite into his kingdom? And this is setting the scene for this parable that he's going to tell. But let's take a look at Luke chapter 15, verses 1 and 2. So this is going to set the scene, right? So you'll see here in the text, all the tax collectors and sinners were approaching to listen to him. So the hymn here is Jesus. And the Pharisees and scribes were complaining, this man welcomes sinners and eats with them. And so Pharisees and scribes is kind of weird for many of us. We don't quite know what they are. But if you just think about, you know, religiously devout leaders, some religiously devout power brokers, uh, we have to remember that politics and religion, especially at this time, are enmeshed. And so here are uh, kind of political, religious figures who are leaders in the community, as well as those who would have been uh, experts in understanding the scriptures. They would, the scribes, they would have known the scriptures deeply. These were kind of like professional grade uh, Bible teachers. And so one uh, way to look at this is the Pharisees and scribes, if there's anyone who's in, it's got to be them. I mean, if there's anyone who, you know, memorizes the scriptures and, and has a deep understanding of all of the nuances, and, and if anyone's got, you know, religious power and religious devotion, it's got to be this crew. But I want you to see that here, even in just these two verses, you find tax collectors and sinners who would have been considered to be the lowest of the low. Uh, tax collectors in particular would have been viewed as people who would have betrayed their own people so that they could line their pockets with Roman coin. And Rome was the empire that was occupying Jerusalem at this time. And so to be a tax collector would have been a sympathizer with the enemy and someone who makes money off of the plight of his own people. And so with that in mind, you've got these two categories of persons, right? Your friends in low places and your friends in high places, as Garth Brook says. You've got tax collectors and sinners, the lowest of the low, and you've got the Pharisees and scribes who are the outstanding citizens. But what's interesting is many, not all, but many of the Pharisees and scribes became antagonistic towards Jesus, and one of the reasons, the best that I can tell from the text, is that they thought that they deserved to be in the in crowd. And people like tax collectors and sinners, certainly they could be invited in, but only if they cleaned up their act. Only if they became more like the Pharisees or scribes. And so here's the scene. All the tax collectors and sinners were approaching to listen to him. So I want you to see here too, that Jesus is drawing them in that there is a desirability about the teachings of Jesus that even tax collectors and sinners want to listen to him. And let me just pause for a moment and talk to the Jesus followers. I know that all of us are followers of Jesus. And if you're still trying to figure out who Jesus is, man, you are so welcome as part of our church family. I'm so glad that you're joining us today. But for those of you that are Jesus followers, let me just ask you to consider this. Do you speak about Jesus in such a way that the lowest of the low, the outcasts and those who are the least religious people are curious and drawn in. When you represent Jesus in your community, to your family, to your workplace, on social media, are you doing so in such a way that draws people like tax collectors and sinners in? 
as Jesus shows us. Or, as unfortunately we too often have seen, is our language being repulsive inappropriately or unnecessarily offensive or caustic. I would encourage you, especially in the next three months, as we speak openly as Christians, for those of us who are Jesus followers, let us remember that we are first representatives of the King and creator of the universe who has showered us with his love and his grace and his compassion. And we are called to do likewise and let every word that comes out of our mouth be seasoned with love and grace, compassion and mercy. Notice Jesus is speaking in such a way that draws in tax collectors and sinners. What might our lives look like if we were to do the same? However, at the same time, Jesus' teaching and behavior is begetting the criticism of the religious leaders and power brokers of his day. Now, I, know, I want you to just lean into this piece. This man welcomes, and then watch this, welcomes sinners and eats with them. Now, here's the thing about dining with somebody. And actually, there's little glimpses of this in uh, American cultures. Some of the uh, South American and even European and Asian cultures have reminded many of us of this, even here in America, with our individualistic tendencies. But to dine with someone in Jesus' culture was not simply a way to pass the time. To invite someone to table or to sit at table with somebody was communicating, these are my people. I associate with these type of people. This is my people. And so Jesus inviting tax collectors and sinners, the lowest of the lot, right? The outcasts, the ones who would not have been thought to have been invited into the kingdom of God. Jesus is here dining with them. And he seems to do so, so frequently that he becomes known for who he's eating with. Because he's eating with people that, according to the, uh, in his day, the modern religious mind, these are not people you want to associate with because your reputation might be smeared. Now, for me as a follower of Jesus, that causes me at least to pause and think, who am I eating with? Who do I invite to my table? Are the people that are at my table simply mirror images of me? People who are like me, who have the same preferences and prejudices? Or, like Jesus, am I inviting all different types of people to my table? I wonder maybe what that might be like in your life as well. And so we ask ourselves this question, who does Jesus invite into his kingdom? Now, for those of you that are part of Desert Springs, we need to lean into this question. As we have begun to regather as a congregation physically, and as we continue, many of us continue to make the decision to regather when the time is right and when it's healthy for us to do so. Over these next few weeks, months, maybe even years, I have no idea how long COVID's going to last. But I do know that as we begin and continue to, excuse me, regather again in healthy ways, we need to remind ourselves, not only who does Jesus invite into his kingdom, but who are we inviting in to his church. I want to ask for those of you that are part of Desert Springs, is there any category of persons that you are consciously or subconsciously not willing to have 
at our communion table. Is there any category of persons that you are not willing to have, whether it's conscious or subconscious even, that you are not willing to have at our communion table? You see, Jesus invites everyone in and he calls his local church families or his church body. He calls them to live just as he lived. And Jesus models for us radical hospitality, inviting not only the Pharisees and scribes, which of course they're always welcome, but also inviting in the lowest of the low, the outcasts, the ones who no one thinks should ever be allowed at a communion table. This is the scene. This is the context. This is the tension that exists that Jesus answers with the parable that we oftentimes call the parable of the prodigal son. And we're going to take a deep dive into that over these next few weeks. Next week, we're going to kick it off looking at the opening portion of this parable. But today, first, I want to leave you with this question. Who are you inviting into your church? Now, probably one of the best illustrations of this that I've ever seen and frankly has profoundly impacted me is one, uh, it's an experience given and shared by uh, a pastor and a sociologist named Tony Campolo. And he can tell it way better than I can. And so I'm going to let him do it. And then I'll come back at the end and end with just a concluding thought. And so take a listen to Pastor Tony Campolo. Lulu from the East Coast, those of you who have been there know that you wake up like at three o'clock in the morning and you can't get back to sleep. And I'm, I'm hungry. And I, I went looking for something to eat. And even at that wee hour of the morning in a bustling city like Honolulu, you can't find a place that's open. But up a side street, I did find a place. I went in, sat down on the stool. There was a greasy spoon, no booze, just a row of stools in front of the counter. And, and this fat guy with a dirty, filthy, greasy apron came out, pulled his cigar out, put it down, and said, what do you want? I didn't touch the menu. It was one of those plastic menus that grease had piled up on it. And I knew that if I opened it, something extraterrestrial would crawl out. I said, I'd like a cup of coffee and a donut. So he poured the coffee, and then he did this. And he picked up the donut. <laughs> I hate that. So I'm sitting here, 3.30 in the morning, drinking my coffee and eating this dirty donut. Into the room come about eight or nine prostitutes, and they sat down on either side of me. And I tried to disappear. <laughs> and the one on my immediate right said, tomorrow's my birthday, she said to her friend. I'm going to be 39. Her friend said, so what do you want me to do? Sing happy birthday? You want a cake? What, do you, what should we do? Have a party for you? You're going to be 39. First woman said, look, I don't, I'm not expecting anything. I just, why do you have to put me down? And then she said, with a crack in her voice, I've never had a birthday party in my whole life. I don't expect to have one now. That did it. I waited till." You know, till they all left, and I was the only one left. I called Harry over. I said, do they come in here every night? He said, yeah. I said, the one next to me? He said, Agnes. I said, tomorrow's her birthday. 
what do you say we decorate the place? And when she comes in tomorrow, we have a birthday party for her because I heard her say she's never had a birthday party in her whole life. He said, mister, that's brilliant. That is brilliant. Jane, he called his wife out of the back room. She did the cooking. He wants to throw a birthday party for Agnes. I thought, jeez, this is great. She comes out. She grabs my hand. She says, mister, you wouldn't understand this because of what she does, you know, but she's one of the kind people in this town. She's one of the caring people in this town. I said, look, can I, can I decorate the place? She said, to your heart's content. I said, I'm going to bring a birthday cake. Harry said, oh, no, the cake's my thing. I thought, oh, jeez. <laughs> so I got there the next morning. I got there the next morning at about 2.30. I had bought crepe paper at the Kmart, strung it across the plate, place, made a big sign that said, happy birthday, Agnes, put it on the mirror behind the counter. I had the place spruced. Jane, who does the cooking, got the word out on the street so that by 3.15, every prostitute in Honolulu was squeezed into this place. I mean, people, it was wall-to-wall prostitutes and me. (laughs) 3.30 in the morning, the door opens. In comes Agnes and her friends. I got everybody poised, everybody ready. The minute she walks through the door, we yell, happy birthday, Agnes, and all start cheering like mad. I've never seen anybody so stunned in my life. Her knees buckled. They steadied her and got her and sat her down on a chair. And we started singing, happy birthday, happy birthday, happy birthday, dear Agnes. And when they brought out the cake, she lost it and started to cry. Harry just stood there with the cake. And finally, he said, all right, Agnes, knock it off. Blow out the candles, Agnes. Come on, blow out the candles. She tried and she couldn't. So he blew out the candles and handed her the knife and said, now cut the cake, come on now, cut the cake. She sat there for a long moment, and then she said to me, is it all right if I don't cut the cake? She said, what I'd really like to do is take the cake home and show it to my mother. I said, it's your cake. She stood up. I said, do you have to do it now? She said, I live two doors down. Let me take the cake home. I'll bring it right back, I promise. She picked up the cake. She pushed through the crowd and out the door. And as the door swung slowly shut, dead silence. The whole group was stunned. I didn't know what to say. Finally, after a few uneasy moments, I said, what do you say we pray? It's weird looking back on it now. A sociologist leading a prayer meeting with a bunch of prostitutes at 3.30 in the morning in a diner in Honolulu was the right thing to do, and I prayed that God would deliver her from what dirty, filthy men had done to her, usually starting like it, you know, when they're about 12 or 13, and then they're ruined and hurt. And when I finished praying that God would make her new, that God would give her back everything that had been taken from her, I said amen and lifted my eyes, and Harry was right in my face. He said, hey, Campolo, you told me you were a sociologist. You're no sociologist. You're a preacher. What kind of church you belong to? And one of those moments when you come up with just the right words, I said, I belong to a church that throws birthday parties for whores at 3.30 in the morning. (laughs) I thought that was a clever answer. I'll never forget his response. 
He looked back and he said, no, you don't. No, you don't. He said, I would join a church like that. Wouldn't we all? Wouldn't we all join a church that threw birthday parties for whores at 3.30 in the morning? I got news for you. That is the kind of church that Jesus came to create. That is such a profound image of God's radical love for us, the runaway love of God towards us. Now, we started our time together by asking this question, who does Jesus invite to his kingdom? And again, the text shows us, everybody, the Pharisees and the scribes, yes. The tax collectors and sinners, yes. And now, for those of us who are followers of Jesus, who are you inviting to meet Jesus? You see, Jesus wants everyone to know about him and his runaway love for us. And so I would just leave you with this question as we begin this study in Luke chapter 15. Who are you inviting to meet Jesus? Because I know that he wants to meet them. Church family, I love you so much. More importantly, Jesus loves you more than you could ever imagine. And he calls us to be the type of church who invites everybody, everybody in. Let us strive to live the love and the grace of God moment by moment, day by day. Thank you guys so much for joining us today. We will see you next time.